You are listening to Radio Maria, a Christian voice in your home. We now present our program, Jesus, the Promised Messiah of Judaism, with your host, Roy Showman. Hi, this is Roy Showman, and welcome once again to Jesus, the Promised Messiah of Judaism, the show on Radio Maria that celebrates the Jewish roots of the Catholic Church, or seen the other way around that celebrates the fulfillment, the full realization of all of the promise of Judaism in the Catholic Church and her sacraments. Well, we are still in the Easter season, and what better time of the year is there other than the Easter season for celebrating the transformation of Judaism into the Catholic Church and her sacraments? Since it took place, depending on how you look at it, it took place with uh, during the Triduum, it took place with the uh, death and resurrection of Jesus Christ, or perhaps even more precisely, it took place at the Last Supper which was at one and the same time a Passover Seder and the first Catholic Mass, as well as, of course, being the Last Supper between Jesus and his apostles. Now, in the last few weeks, I have talked about the Passover connection with the, with the Last Supper with Jesus, why the crucifixion had to take place on Passover, and why the first Catholic Mass had to be a Passover Seder. And I recently came across an incredibly beautiful writing by Pope Benedict on exactly that theme, although, of course, much deeper and more theologically grounded and scripturally grounded than I am able to do. He is one heck of a scholar and one heck of a deep thinker and one heck of a clear writer, if I can say so. So I came across this writing of his, and I thought it would be very worthwhile to spend today's show basically talking about what Pope Benedict wrote and said on the relationship between Judaism and Catholicism, focusing on what he said about the transformation of the uh, Old Testament covenant with the Jews into the New Testament covenant through Jesus and how it was not a disruption or discontinuity or replacement. It was a natural transformation of an earlier covenant into a later form of the same covenant. But he says it a lot better than I do, so why don't I just read his words? Uh, First of all, the article that I'm reading from is called Grace and Vocation Without Remorse, and it appeared in the German theological journal Communio, in 2018, written by Benedict XVI. So I'm just going to start at the beginning. I don't know uh, if I will have time to go through the entire article, and I am definitely skipping. The article is, I warn you, 22 pages. But I've picked out some uh, very telling paragraphs that, when I string them together, I think will tell the basic story that he's outlining in that article. So, before I launch in, let me just uh, say that this is a live call-in program, and the number here is 866-333-6279, or 866-333-MARY, M-A-R-Y, and you're welcome to call at any time, Um, or if you Skype, the Skype address, or Skype number, so to speak, is Radio Maria USA Studio, and about halfway through the hour, I will take a short musical break to uh, facilitate calls coming in. However, let me begin now. Grace and Vocation Without Remorse by Pope Benedict XVI. 
First of all, the introductory paragraph, which says it all in a nutshell. The covenant between God and Israel is indestructible because of the continuity of God's election, but at the same time it is co-determined by the whole drama of human error. The journey of God with his people finally finds its summary and final figure in the Last Supper of Jesus Christ, which anticipates and carries within itself the cross and resurrection. The journey of God with his people, that is, the journey of God with the Jewish people in this context, finds its summary and final figure in the Last Supper of Jesus Christ, which anticipates and carries within itself the cross and resurrection. So in other words, what you see here is that Pope Benedict is saying the same thing that we've said before, which is the Last Supper, in being a Passover Seder, is the fulfillment of Judaism in transforming the promise of Judaism into the fulfillment of that promise in the cross and resurrection of Jesus and in the sacraments of the Catholic Mass. Now, that was simply a kind of um, opening summary of, uh, of where he is going with this article, so I will simply continue reading. Judaism, in the strict sense, does not mean the Old Testament, which is common to Jews and Christians. In fact, there are two responses in history to the destruction of the Temple and the new radical exile of Israel, Judaism and Christianity. Now, this, this requires a little explanation. We think casually, you know, in the year 2021, 2022, excuse me, that the Judaism, as we know Judaism today, is the religion of the Old Testament, that somehow it's a, a continuation of the religion of the Old Testament. Now, in one sense, that's true, but in another sense, it's not true. Because if you read the Old Testament, the religion that the Jews followed in the Old Testament required animal sacrifice and required the temple in Jerusalem. The temple in Jerusalem was destroyed in 70 AD. Jewish animal sacrifice ended in 70 AD. The sacramental system that God had established for the Jewish people for the remission of sins and for their intimacy with God became impossible after the destruction of the temple in 70 AD. The Judaism that we see at the synagogue down the street today, or even at a Orthodox shul in Jerusalem today, does not really bear much relationship to the Judaism of the Old Testament. The Judaism of the Old Testament could not continue after the destruction of the temple. So I will, with that background, repeat the sentence I just read of uh, Pope Benedict. Judaism in the strict sense does not mean the Old Testament. That, In other words, Judaism as we know it today is not a reflection of the Old Testament. The Old Testament is essentially common to both Jews and Christians. There have been two responses in history to the destruction of the Temple and the radical exile of Israel, Judaism and Christianity. So, Pope Benedict isn't using the particular terminology that I'm going to introduce here, but what we have today is known as Rabbinic Judaism, and it was a response by the Jewish nation to the destruction of the Temple, and it is an attempt to continue Judaism without the Temple. The Old Testament Judaism ended with the destruction of the Temple. There have been two responses to that ending, even two responses among Jews. 
One of those two responses was rabbinic Judaism, which is what we see today, and the other response was Christianity. It was a fork in the road. It, this is not a branch that branched off a road that's continuing, so to speak, like an exit off a highway. Christianity was not an exit off the highway of Judaism. Judaism came to the end of the highway, and it forked into two new highways, rabbinic Judaism and Christianity. And continuing with Pope Benedict, it became increasingly clear in the course of development that the temple with its cult was not to be restored. In other words, um, although there was some hope at the beginning that the temple would be rebuilt, eventually it became clear that the temple was never going to be rebuilt and the cult of Judaism, the, the sacramental system of Judaism represented in the Old Testament, would never resume. Um, the, however, there was another answer for Jews to the destruction and scattering, because of after 70 AD the Jews were exiled from Jerusalem, more precisely after 130 AD they were totally exiled from Jerusalem. There was another answer for Jews to the destruction and scattering, an answer that from the beginning presupposed these events as definitive and presupposed that the resulting situation was a process that the faith of Israel itself anticipated. This was the response of the Christians, who were not entirely separated from Judaism initially, but upheld the continuity of Israel in their faith. As we know, only a small part of Israel has been able to accept this answer. In other words, there were two responses to the end of Old Testament Judaism. One was rabbinic Judaism, and the other was Christianity, which did not see the destruction of the temple as a uh, kind of novel event, but saw it as, from the beginning, being presupposed by Judaism, being, being from the beginning the plan of Judaism. The plan of Judaism was to be transformed into Christianity. Um, so, uh, let me re repeat that sentence. Maybe it'll make more sense this time around. There was another answer for Jews to the destruction and scattering. That is a reference to Christian Jews, to Jews who follow Jesus. That answer, from the very beginning, presupposed the events as definitive. In other words, presupposed the destruction of the temple and the scattering of the Jews as definitive, and presupposed that the resulting situation, that is, the destruction of the temple and the dispersal of the Jews, was a process that the faith of Israel itself anticipated, was in fact the fulfillment of the prophecy, so to speak, in the Old Testament of the future of Judaism. Um, and, of course, this response, only a small part of Israel has been able to accept I don't know if that's literally true, but of course, the everything that we think of as Jews in Judaism today, I should say everyone we think of as Jews and everything we think of as Judaism today, represents the part of the Jewish community which was unable to ex uh, accept that answer. Continuing, the Christian community expressed its identity in the writings in the New Testament. These writings, however, do not stand on their own but constantly refer to the Old Testament, that is, to the Bible of Israel. Their purpose is to show the authentic interpretation of the Old Testament scriptures in the events surrounding Jesus Christ. 
The Christian canon, then, by its nature, consists of two parts, the Old Testament, the scripture of Israel and now of Judaism, as well as the New Testament, which authentically clarifies the way to interpret the Old in the light of Jesus. So you see that the Old Testament and the New Testament, which of course are both part of um, Christianity, part of the Christian script, sacred scriptures, part of the scripture, part of the Christian Bible, both the Old and the New Testament do not stand separately. But the uh, excuse me, the New Testament does not stand separately from the Old Testament. The New Testament does not stand on its own, but in fact it stands on the Old Testament as a continuation of the Old Testament and as representing the authentic interpretation of the Old Testament in the events surrounding Jesus Christ. So the, the meaning of the Old Testament is revealed in the New Testament. It's revealed in the events surrounding Jesus Christ. And that's why the Christian canon, by its very nature, consists of two parts, the Scripture of Israel and the New Testament, which authentically clarifies the way to interpret the Old in the light of the New. I think that's pretty clear. I don't think that comes as any surprise to we Christians who are listening. However, I will point out that when this article by Pope Benedict was published, it created quite a brouhaha, because it's not as politically correct, so to speak, as some Catholic theologians want to be nowadays, because it makes it very clear that the fullness of the meaning of Judaism is actually known to the Catholic Church in a way that is not known to the Jewish community. So, continuing. Um, now, I'll have to add another little historical factor because I'm skipping a section, which is there was an early heresy in, in the church known as Marcionism, which, and, and Marcion, basically, his theology was that the God of the Old Testament is not the God of the New Testament. I know that's pretty ridiculous, but basically Marcion held that the God of the Jewish people in the Old Testament and the God that's described in the Old Testament actually was not the one true God, was not the most holy trinity, but was essentially, you could say, a pagan God and not the God of the New Testament, and that was Marcionism. And, but the Church of Rome definitively rejected Marcionism as a heresy, and with its rejection of Marcion in the second century, the Church of Rome made it clear that Christians and Jews worship the same God. The holy books of Israel are also the holy books of Christendom. The faith of Abraham is also the faith of Christians. Abraham is also for the Christians, the father of faith. So the New Testament is in no way a discontinuity. There's no, there's no change in God. There's no change in um, the plan of salvation that is represented in the Old Testament. In other words, the plan of salvation represented in the Old Testament is in fact Christianity. There, God did not change the plan of salvation. There was no change of God's. There was no change for the plan of salvation. 
the fundamental difference, so to speak, between the Old Testament and the New Testament is that the plan of the Old Testament was for Jesus to come and for the covenant represented by the Old Testament or in the Old Testament to be transformed into the covenant represented by the New Testament. I hope this makes sense to you. I wish that you were, you know, a class or an audience in front of me and I could ask, you know, does this make sense? Any questions, but all I can do is hope for the best and continue at this point. Now, remember when Jesus said, um, leading up to the crucifixion, that the temple, that this temple, he was pointing the temple in Jerusalem would be destroyed, but would be rebuilt in three days. And he got in a lot of trouble for having said that. In his saying about the temple being destroyed and rebuilt in three days, Jesus anticipated the event of the destruction of the temple and announced a new form of worship whose midpoint would be the gift of his body by which the Sinai covenant would be brought to its definitive form, becoming the new covenant. At the same time, the covenant would be extended to all believers thus giving the promise its definitive meaning. Let me go back over that in a moment. So you remember when Jesus pointed to the temple and said, this temple will be destroyed, but it will be rebuilt in three days. Everyone laughed at him. Actually, they ended up crucifying him. And of course, that temple, which took 70 years to build, could not be rebuilt in three days. By saying that, Jesus was making it very clear to us that, the, the re, well, I guess you could say, how um, Pope Benedict say, um, and Jesus anticipated the event of the destruction of the temple and announced a new form of worship whose midpoint would be the gift of his body by which the Sinai covenant would be brought to its definitive form. So essentially, the, the temple, the temple in which God was worshipped in Jerusalem, would be replaced by the indwelling Most Holy Trinity in our bodies, and first, in some sense, in Jesus' body. When Jesus resurrected after three days, he would become the new temple, and he in us would be the new temple. And so it was the three days that it took for Jesus to be resurrected, which would be the three days that it took for the temple to be rebuilt. So it wasn't the stone temple that would be rebuilt in three days. It was the temple within um, the, well, within the, indwell, the indwelling temple within the human being, which would be reestablished in three days. Didn't do a great job, but the stuff isn't easy. <laughs> the stuff isn't easy to either understand or to explain. Okay, so I will just uh, recap, uh, reread the last uh, sentence or two. In saying about the temple being destroyed and rebuilt in three days, Jesus anticipated the event of the destruction of the temple and announced a new form of worship whose midpoint would be the gift of his body by which the Sinai covenant would be brought to its definitive form, becoming the new covenant. At the same time, the covenant would be extended to all believers, thus giving the promise its definitive meaning. Because remember, the entire intention of Judaism was not to help the Jews. The entire intention of Judaism 
was to bring salvation to all of mankind through the incarnation of the second person of the Most Holy Trinity, through the institution of Christianity, and most particularly the Catholic Church and her sacraments. That's my words. That's not Benedict's words. Back to Benedict's words. It was therefore evident to Christians that the message of Jesus Christ, his death and resurrection, signified the God-given turning point of time. And the interpretation of the sacred books in light of Jesus Christ is, as it were, an interpretation legitimated by God. That should be obvious. The um, Reading the Old Testament in the light of the New Testament is not reading it in a distorted or rose-colored or you know, a light that changes the meaning. It's reading it in the light that reveals the meaning, the interpretation legitimated by God, the interpretation essentially authorized by God. Okay. The whole Old Testament is now understood as prophecy. Even the five books of Moses are essentially prophecies. This entails a dynamic approach to the Old Testament, whose texts are not to be read statically in themselves, but must be understood altogether as a movement forward towards Christ. This is going to become really key to understanding what Pope Benedict is saying, because the uh, issue, one of the issues that Pope Benedict is facing in this article, is this issue of did God ever revoke his covenant with the Jews? And if he never revoked his covenant with the Jews, why do the Jews need Christianity? They still have their original saving covenant with God. And as shameful as it is, there are actually Catholic theologians who hold this position. Some of them even have positions in the hierarchy. And Benedict is trying to politely address them and disabuse them of that mistaken notion. And he's doing so by pointing out that the concept of covenant in the Old Testament is not of a static, cast-in-concrete, unchanging covenant, but of a covenant that is dynamic in nature and responds both to, in some sense, the demands of God and changes, it responds to uh, essentially human error, responds to the way the people uh, hold up their end of the covenant. So in a way, I don't want to say it's a moving target, the covenant. I don't like the word evolving, so I'm trying to find a good word. But it's a, it's a uh, covenant that goes through phases in response to where we are in God's plan and in response to the Jews' own response to the covenant. Going back to Pope Benedict, this entails a dynamic approach to the Old Testament whose texts are not to be read statically in themselves, but must be understood altogether as a movement forward towards Christ. The entire Old Testament is a movement forward towards Christ. The Torah and the prophets are read as anticipated Christology. The Psalms become the great prayer book of the church, right? If any of you are familiar with the divine office, Every priest and every religious from the beginning in the Catholic Church spends hours a day reading the Psalms, praying the Psalms. It used to be hours a day. Maybe it's now altogether 45 minutes or one hour a day. 
But the heart of the prayer of the church is the Psalms. Remember, the Psalms are from the Old Testament. For Christians, how? Oh, traditionally, David is considered the author of the Psalms. For Christians, however, the author is first Jesus Christ, who is the real David and thus the one praying the Psalms. The Psalms are read from him and with him. So we can see a kind of prophetic meaning to the Psalms or prophetic character of the Psalms that in the context of the Old Testament, they are considered having been written by David. But in the light of Christianity, we understand that they were really written by Jesus Christ and that David was a figure of Jesus Christ and they really are read from him and with him. The original meaning of the text is not therefore repealed, but is exceeded. Exceeded. Exceeded is even more. Okay. Phew. Time to take a breath, maybe even a, a drink to lubricate my throat. I'm just going to go on another couple of minutes before I, I take a break to uh, receive calls. So if you want to um, write down the magic number, so to speak, it is um, 866-333-6279 or 866-333-MARY. And uh, in about three or four minutes, I will uh, take a musical break to receive calls. Anyway, continuing with the text of uh, Benedict. In number four of the Second Vatican Council's Declaration on the Relationship of the Church to Non-Christian Religions, the relationship between Christianity and Judaism is formulated in a decisive way. One can say that the new view of Judaism that developed after the Second Vatican Council can be summarized in two statements. The theory of substitution which has hitherto determined theological reflection on this question, should be rejected. This view holds that after the rejection of Jesus Christ, Israel ceased to be the bearer of the promises of God. So, this is Pope Benedict pointing out that this document, the Nostra Tata from the Second Vatican Council, definitively rejected the theory of substitution. In other words, re definitively rejected the idea that because the Jews rejected Jesus Christ, God rejected the Jews. Basically, that's not an acceptable opinion within the Catholic Church. It has been definitively rejected. You cannot consider that God rejected the Jews just because they rejected Jesus. Um, Instead, it is more correct to speak of the never-revoked covenant. In other words, God's covenant with the Jews was never revoked. Israel was never replaced by the church. The covenant was never revoked. These statements are basically correct, but are in many ways imprecise and need to be given further critical consideration. And this is where a lot of the confusion lies, is that you know, viewed from 20,000 feet, these statements are correct. But once you zoom down and, and focus on them more closely, you realize that they need further refinement before you can accept them wholesale. And I will give a little taste of what's coming, and then I will take the break. 
And here is a little taste of what is coming. Um, when you look at the promises to Israel in the Old Testament, and when you look at Judaism in the Old Testament, you see two different things running in parallel. You see God's election of the Jews. You see his favoritism, let's say, towards the Jews. You see his promises made to Abraham and to his seed forever in response to Abraham's fidelity to God. You see the Jews characterized as the apple of God's eye and all of those things. You can consider that in a broad sense, the election of the Jews, the chosenness of the Jews. You see something else in the Old Testament also. You see a sacramental system for the remission of sins. You see a system of worship based on animal sacrifice. You see a kind of sacramental exchange between the Jewish people and God that centers on temple worship and animal sacrifice in the temple. So you see those two things, right? You see a sacramental system and you see a chosenness. And in order to make sense of this entire area, you have to see those two things as separate and you have to see that the sacramental system ended at the Last Supper, essentially. The sacramental system ended with Jesus' death on the cross. The sacramental system of animal sacrifice, the, the, the entire sacramental Judaism, has been unable to be followed since the destruction of the temple, even if God had continued to honor it. So that has not continued. That You shouldn't really call it a covenant, but that system ended. And that's very clear in the New Testament. It's very clear in the letter to the Hebrews. However, one cannot conclude from that that the election ended. The election, according, I mean, basically according to the Catholic Church, according to St. Paul in the letter to the Romans, according to Benedict in this, in this document, the election continues, but the sacramental system has ended. And if you... If you get that clear in one's head, then a lot of the nonsensical statements that are made by people in trying to disentangle this issue just, just evaporate and everything becomes quite clear. With that, however, I've come to the halfway point in the program, perhaps even a few minutes past the halfway point, and it's time for a short musical break. And we are in the Easter season and so you might recognize this Easter hymn. You're listening to Jesus, the Promised Messiah of Judaism on Radio Maria with your host, me, Roy Showman. And I'll be back in a couple of minutes. And in the meantime, if you wish to call in with a comment or question, the number here is 866-333-6279. And coming out of the short musical break, I'll first look at the call board and take any calls that come in and then continue with this discussion that revolves around Pope Benedict's document on the relationship between Judaism and the Catholic faith. So let's have our short musical break now, back in a couple of minutes.
you enjoyed that the musical group was Harpa Dei who is my favorite for these shows they might sound a little familiar by now I hope they do um, and if you like their music uh, they have a channel on YouTube Harpa H-A-R-P-A H-A-R-P-A like harp with an A at the end and Dei D-E-I meaning the harp of God and um, I'm a hearty, uh, heartily endorse their music a big fan of theirs but I see that we do have a caller, and so if you would put them on. Uh, Joel, are you there? Yes, I'm here. Can you hear me? I can hear you. Great. Uh, did you have a question? Okay. Yeah, I'm not sure exactly how, how to phrase this. It, it's following up on, on what you were just speaking about. I'm wondering, I, w- I was following the, the whole discussion about Nostra Aetate. Um, I'm wondering if, if at all or uh, how... What, what the status of the Jews might be or how their relationship might change if they were to reinstitute um, sacrificial worship, temple that's a, worship. That's a great question. Um, and by the way, uh, I see that you're in Massachusetts. I will be speaking in Bridgewater, Massachusetts in a couple of weeks. Um, I don't know exactly the date, about about May 24th or something at St. Thomas Aquinas. So if you're in that part of Massachusetts, or if any of the listeners are in that part of Massachusetts. Um, but anyway, it's a great question. Um, the First of all, for there to be animal sacrifice uh, would require the rebuilding of the temple, uh, which does not look very plausible. But more importantly than that, we know from God, actually, that it wouldn't do any good, that animal sacrifice would no longer be acceptable to God. We know it as Christians, of course, from the New Testament, and in particular the letter to the Hebrews. St. Paul also talks about it. But we also know it by his, from history, because, uh, first of all, of course, the temple collapsed at the time of the crucifixion. That in itself was a act of God, a sign of God, I mean, a a picture provided by God that the temple was no longer in effect, so to speak. Uh, If you've seen, anyone seen the Passion of the Christ, they've seen the columns in front of the Holy of Holies fall, one to the left and one to the right, splitting the curtain in two, and uh, and so forth, and, and, uh, you know, temple falling down when the earth, you know, when the earthquake took place and so forth. But very interestingly, uh, the Talmud recounts that um, 
every year on Yom Kippur, which was the most important sacrifice of the year, it was a sacrifice the one time of the year when the high priest went into the Holy of Holies to offer sacrifice for the Jewish nation, a miracle would occur. A scarlet cord would be tied around or wrapped around the entry to the Holy of Holies. It would be scarlet. It would be, you know, deep red. The high priest would go in, would um, offer the sacrifice, and when the sacrifice was accepted by God, that scarlet cord would miraculously turn white. And the Talmud recounts that that miracle happened almost every year until, quote, about 40 years before the destruction of the temple, at which point it never occurred again. 40 years before the destruction of the temple is essentially the time of the crucifixion. So we have actually, isn't that neat? We have in, in the Jewish theological history the fact that at the time of the crucifixion, the temp, as of that point in time, the temple sacrifices were no longer accepted by God. Isn't that cool? Yeah, I think. that's amazing. And uh, we also have the fact that Julian the Apostate, I believe he was 3rd century, I'm not 100% sure, tried to rebuild the temple in Jerusalem. And the contemporary accounts recount how there were lightning balls and all kinds of miraculous events that prevented the uh, rebuilding of the temple. So, no, uh, it, I wouldn't do any good. Um, but it would also bring about World War III if the Jews tried to take over yeah, the I mean, temple. Yeah, that, that, that's the other concern is, is uh, uh, we may not have um, uh, many answers about what would change dynamically, but I, but I think the perception, the, the world perception w would change. Yeah. Well, well, I, I, I think I'd better get back to the, the text to do justice to it, but I, I do want to thank, thank you. you for your question. And um, I'll go back to where I, I uh, broke the text before the, before the break. Um, both of these theses, that Israel is not replaced or substituted by the church, and that the covenant was never revoked, are basically correct, but in many ways are imprecise and need to be given further critical consideration. Not only does St. Paul speak of all Israel being saved, that's in Romans 11, but also the book of Revelation of St. John sees two groups of the redeemed, 144,000 from the 12 tribes of Israel, and next to them a great multitude that no man can number, Revelation 7-9, as the representation of the saved pagan world. According to the perspective of the New Testament, this eschatological view is not simply concerned with something that will eventually come to pass after many thousands of years. Rather, the eschatol, eschatological view is always somehow present. From both points of view, it was clear to the Church that Judaism is not one religion among others, but stands in a unique situation, and therefore must be recognized as such by the Church. Let me unpack that a little bit. I never thought of this before, by the way, before I read this in, in, um, in Pope Benedict. It's very interesting. The book of Revelation, in the book of Revelation, St. John sees gathered around the throne of the Lamb in heaven two groups of people, two groups of the redeemed. One group of the redeemed are Jews, the 144,000 from the 12 tribes of Israel. And the other group of the redeemed are the great multitude that no man can number. Isn't that interesting? If there was no meaningfulness to Jewish identity after the coming of Christ, 
Why would there be two groups of the redeemed separate in some sense in heaven? One group from the tribes of Israel and the other group from the rest of the world. It certainly suggests that the church is mystically composed of Jew and Gentile, will be composed of Jew and Gentile until the end of time, and even maybe suggests that it will be composed in some sense of Jew and Gentile in heaven. Now, I don't want to go out on a limb here. This sounds pretty radical to me. So all I want to do is is stop where Pope Benedict stopped and say, isn't this interesting that in the book of Revelation, St. John seems to, sees two groups of the redeemed, 144,000 from the 12 tribes of Israel, and a great multitude that no man can number from the saved pagan world. It's worth, it's worth uh, thinking about, and it certainly is suggestive. I will go on. I, I don't want to be accused of being too much of a Judaizer or a Jewish chauvinist, but between Romans 11 and that image, it certainly seems like Judaism did not, or excuse me, that the um, election of the Jews did not completely evaporate at the coming of Christ. Uh, then, then Pope Benedict goes on. Uh, in my analysis of the eschatological discourse of Jesus in the second volume of Jesus of Nazareth, which is a book he wrote, I have shown that according to Jesus' understanding of history, a time of the Gentiles comes between the destruction of the temple and the end of the world. Although, um, I'll just stop there. A time of the Gentiles comes between the destruction of the temple and the end of the world. The fathers were well aware of this new structuring of, well, I'm going to have to paraphrase because because um, I'm, I'm skipping too much material for it to make sense if I simply concatenate the sentences. It is clear from some discourses of Jesus and from Paul in Romans 11 that there are three, three eras of time. Um, now I will now go into Benedict's words. The fathers were well aware of this new structuring of history when, for example, they described the movement of history according to the threefold scheme of ombra, imago, and veritas. In other words, the shadow, the image, and the truth. Judaism was the shadow. The Old Testament was the shadow. It was the prophecy. It was the foreshadowing of what was to come. The church on earth now, between the first and second coming, is the image. It's the time of the Gentiles. It is, uh, and, and uh, Pope Benedict will go much further to describe what's going on now in the time of the Gentiles. But it's this middle period. And then, finally, we get the second coming and we get the full realization of redemption in it is in its ultimate concluded form. So history is divided into these three stages, the foreshadowing, the image of what is to come, which is what we have now, the time of the Gentiles, and the full truth of it. In summary, we can say that the whole story of Jesus told in the New Testament shows that the time of Jesus, the time of the Gentiles, the time of the church, is not a time of cosmic transformation in which the final decisions between God and man are already complete, 
but is a time of freedom. In this time, God encounters mankind through the crucified love of Jesus Christ in order to gather them into the kingdom of God through a free yes. It is the time of freedom, and that also means a time in which evil continues to have power. God's power during this time is a power of patience and love that remains effective against the power of evil. It is a time of God's patience, which is often too great for us, a time of victories, but also a time when love and truth are defeated. The ancient church summed up the essence of this time in the saying, Regnavit alinio Deus, God reigns from a tree. So, even though Jesus won his victory, even though we're living in this time of the Gentiles between the first coming and the second coming of Christ, we don't live in a fully redeemed world. We don't live in the final state of things. We, we live in a time of freedom in which God encounters man through the crucified love of Jesus Christ in order to solicit our yes, so to speak, to him, in order to test us and um, and and that entails allowing evil also to have somewhat of a free reign. It is not a time of full victory. It is a time of testing. The ultimate victory has been accomplished, but we are not living in the time of the realization of that victory. We are living in the image, so to speak, the picture of that victory, but in one uh, a time of freedom, still allowing the uh, power of evil. Uh, I'm not. I'll go back to Benedict's words. It is a time of freedom, and that also means a time in which evil continues to have power. God's power during this time is a power of patience and love that remains effective against the power of evil. In other words, God is not exercising the fullness of his power. He could defeat evil, right? He could eradicate evil. But it's not a time for God to do that. It's a time for him to exercise his patience and love and allow evil to still continue to have some power to allow our freedom to for us to be tested and for us to choose God. And that's why the ancient church summed up the essence of this time by saying God reigns from a tree. Christ is reigning from the cross. He is not reigning from the throne of glory, so to speak. He's not reigning as the king after the end of the game. He's reigning as the patience and love of God, showering us with grace to strengthen us, to enable us to, on an individual basis, use our freedom to defeat the evil that wants to bring about our perdition. Um, I better wrap up, so let me let me uh, try to um, kind of. Well, I'll just I'll just read one short, very beautiful um, kind of metaphor from uh, Pope Benedict here. Spiritual theology has always emphasized that the time of the church—that's the time we're in—is not about arriving in paradise but corresponds to the 40-year exodus of Israel worldwide. It is the path of those who are liberated, who have been freed from slavery. 
and as Israel on the way always wished to return to Egypt to slavery and could not recognize the good of freedom as good, the same goes for Christianity in its exodus journey. Again and again it becomes difficult to recognize the mystery of liberation and freedom as a gift of salvation. But through the mercies of God, they can learn that freedom is the great gift that leads to true life. So this is a little bit complicated, but Pope Benedict is making, uh, drawing a parallel picture between the Jews wandering through the desert. Now remember, when the Jews were wandering through the desert, they had just been freed from slavery in Egypt, but they weren't yet in the promised land. They were in their way to the promised land. And although they were freed from the slavery in Egypt, they kept longing to go back to the slavery in Egypt. This is a picture of the Christian, of us, in the period of the church. We are like the Jews in the desert. We are not yet in the promised land. We are on the way to the promised land. We've been liberated from the power of Satan, as the Jews were liberated from the power of Egypt, from the power of Pharaoh. Uh, through our baptism, through the sacraments, we have the uh, power to, to defeat uh, the slave master, Satan. However, just like the Jews were tempted to go back to Egypt because they missed the flesh pots of Egypt, they missed the garlic, they missed the meat that they ate in Egypt, so do we as Christians in this period, in this middle period, have a longing to go back to the slavery, frankly, of Satan, to slavery of sin. And um, some of you may be fortunate not to know that, fortunate enough not to know that dynamic, but I think most of us, many of us, are reverts. Many of us know the pull of that return to Egypt, that return to the slavery of sin, and understand this dynamic of us being kind of pulled forward to the heavenly Jerusalem and yet still feeling a tug backwards to the slavery of Egypt. I think that's an incredibly beautiful image. Um, so let me see how I can use the last two minutes. Um, and, uh, and cause that's exactly what I have. Um, okay. Okay. So I, I, I hope this works to kind of summarize and conclude the whole journey of God with his people. That's the old Testament finally finds its summary and final figure in the Last Supper of Jesus Christ, which anticipates and carries within itself the cross and resurrection. The Sinai covenant, in other words, the covenant with the Jews represented in the Old Testament, was by its very nature always a promise in approach to what is final. It was never the final form of the covenant. It was always an approach. Let us now come to a final judgment on the formula of the never-revoked covenant. Um, yes, God's love is indestructible, but the covenant history between God and man also includes human failure, the breaking of the covenant, and its internal consequences, the destruction of the temple, the scattering of Israel, and the call to repentance, which restores man's capacity for the covenant. The love of God cannot simply ignore man's no. It wounds God himself, and thus necessarily man too. If God's wrath and the severity of his punishments are described in the books of the prophets, then it is necessary to keep in mind that God's punitive actions become suffering for himself. It is not the end of his love, but a new level 
of his love. The reestablishment of the Sinai covenant in the new covenant in Jesus' blood, that is, in his love that vanquishes death, gives the covenant a new and permanently valid form. That's probably the sentence I should end on. The reestablishment of the Sinai covenant in the new covenant in Jesus' blood, that is, in his love that vanquishes death, gives the covenant a new and permanently valid form. So it is the new covenant, it is Christianity, it is the sacraments of the Catholic Church that are the new and permanently valid form of the Sinai covenant, of the covenant that God made with the Jews. Don't blame me, this is Pope Benedict. (laughs) So anyway, I have come to the end of our time. Uh, I hope you can hear that I'm tremendously excited by this. It's a very beautiful exposition and very, very, very beautiful theology, and it makes sense of everything. Um, The truth makes sense. It is in the nature of the truth to make sense, so to speak. Uh, If something appears not to make sense, then uh, either it's not properly understood or it's not the truth. So I hope this has been useful to you. I have certainly thoroughly enjoyed it. You've been listening to Jesus, the Promised Messiah of Judaism on Radio Maria with me, your host, Roy Showman, celebrating the transformation, the fulfillment of Judaism in the Catholic Church and her sacraments. And I hope you join us again next week, same time, same place. And I will go out with that beautiful Alleluia. Um, the Lord has risen from the tomb, sung by Harper Day. And I hope you join us again next week, same time, same place. Bye for now. Oh, oh, oh.